0: Continuing in our study of the wisdom of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 710. ten. Seven ten. As we've been working through Ecclesiastes over the last months, really, we've seen the weight of the problem laid out clearly. Solomon is he's well aware of the many ways that the curse lies heavily on us on the children of mankind. At the same time, even as he's laid that out very clearly, he's woven into that the strands of grace, the threads of wisdom in amidst the pain and the grief of the curse, the warp and the weft, as it were, the good and the grievous that make up this life under the sun. And this morning, we're going to be a little bit more specifically focused on the application of this wisdom in our lives, uh, and, and this is a complex passage. And there's a, a whole series of proverbs that on first glance can seem like they're not really related to each other much at all, but hopefully we'll see some themes that run through the whole section. So, um, but as always, we need the Holy Spirit. We need him to open our eyes to understand and, and to apply faithfully this, his word. So if you're able, please stand with me while I pray for exactly that, and then remain standing as I read from Ecclesiastes 9 and 10. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we desperately need your Spirit. We open your Word, and there are times when we think we know exactly what it means, and there are other times when we are genuinely confused and have no idea. And then there are the times when we think we know what it means, and it doesn't mean that at all. We are very good at twisting your Word to make it mean what we want it to mean. And so, Lord Jesus, give us your Spirit. Restrain our foolish hearts restrain our sin, that we would see what is truly here, the truth, Your Word, that we would believe it, that we would apply it faithfully in our lives, that You, by Your Spirit, would do a mighty work in us through this, Your Word, this morning. We pray, Lord, that You would be praised above all, that my words, frail and faulty as they are, would fade into the background but that your face would be gloriously visible to us as we study your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Ecclesiastes, uh, starting in verse 11 of chapter 9, and I'll read through the end of chapter 10. So this is God's word. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance... Happen to them all, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man. And he by his wisdom could have delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness or quietude will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt, and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, then there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your prince's feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Though Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. In his book, Immeasurable, uh, author Sky Jathani, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing his name right or not, but The author writes this. He says, to compare two leaders, Leader A lifted an entire nation in a time of despair. He mobilized his people against unimaginable odds with a clear vision and an inspiring passion. He launched a movement that has impacted literally everyone alive today. He set in motion an industrial and scientific revolution that produced the first computer." The first jet airplane that began human exploration of space that unlocked the mystery of nuclear energy. Almost every aspect of the modern world has, in one way or another, been influenced by this man. By the time he died at the age of just 56, everyone on the planet knew his name. Without a doubt, Leader A changed the world. Leader B lived during the same time period. In fact, he died just 21 days before uh, Leader A did, but his life was very different. At the height of his influence, Leader B ran a school with just 100 students. He wrote a few books, but was not particularly well regarded. He was beloved by his friends and family and had a reputation for being both intelligent and faithful. But at the time of his death, almost no one knew his name. And most who did know him considered his life's work unfulfilled, including Leader B himself. So, given the choice, given the chance, we like big conferences where we hear from smart people, given the choice, would you, which leader's strategies would you rather study? Which leadership conference would you rather attend? The one featuring a keynote address with thousands of people in a giant room by Leader A or the small breakout workshop in the back hall led by Leader B. If you are inspired by world-changing effectiveness of Leader A, congratulations, you've chosen Adolf Hitler. Leader B, on the other hand, was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor who was executed by the Nazis for his relentless opposition to Hitler. C.S. Lewis said once, reflecting on the word progress, that if you're going the wrong direction, progress is not continuing on faster. It's turning around and going back. Wisdom is needed to figure out whether you're going the wrong way or not. But some, sometimes the big, splashy results, winning all the time, is not actually the best choice. The most effective, quote-unquote, leader may not be the best leader. Another example. The defining moment of Stanislav Petrov's life was the moment he decided to do nothing. Stanislav Petrov was a Russian military duty officer, and he was just a few hours into his shift one afternoon when the alarms blared, warning that intercontinental ballistic missiles, ICBMs, had been launched from an American base. Now, the alarms would turn out to be in error, but nobody knew that at the time. Many military duty officers might have jumped to take immediate defensive and maybe not so defensive action, and I'm sure this is precisely what was drilled into them. This was during one of the most tense periods of the Cold War, and a series of political and and diplomatic events had led to Russia living in constant fear and anticipation of a U.S. attack. And those of you who lived through that time period probably remember a similar attitude and and, uh, approach here in this country expecting an attack from Russia. Anyway, back to Petrov. Before taking immediate decisive defensive action, he first sought clarity on the reality of the situation. After five nerve-wracking minutes, electronic maps and screens were flashing at him as he held a phone in one hand to, to one ear and an intercom in the other, trying to absorb multiple streams of information. After all of that, Colonel Petrov decided that the launch reports were probably a false alarm, and so he did nothing. Petrov was later reprimanded for not immediately reacting to the situation that confronted him, but he defended his action, pointing out that the alert system had been rushed into use and it was known to be likely inaccurate. He said, we are wiser than the computers, something that we would do well to remember today. Now, that time he was right. And ultimately, years later, he was praised for his inaction, for his choice not to do things. Averting the end of the world through global thermonuclear warfare will have that effect sometimes. He could just as easily have been censured or fired, or because it was Soviet Russia, rather worse. The gulag still existed, of course. In our lives, it's let's be honest, it's pretty unusual for us to face decisions that you can tell in the moment are going to be life-changing. More often, the decisions that we face, the ones of the greatest consequence, the decisions that define us, mostly are not earth-shaking and sometimes don't even appear big enough to register in the moment. They can feel small and insignificant in the moment. For most of us, Most of the time, our lives are not defined by big, splashy, one big decision, as perhaps Stanislav Petrov was, but by a million tiny decisions that together shape the course of our lives. Statistically speaking, your calling is not standing heroically in a moment of crisis against the system or the government or the culture or whatever. Statistically speaking, your calling is rather, to steal a phrase, a long obedience in the same direction. God calls his people to faithfulness in the ordinary, everyday, mundane, boring decisions and moments of our lives. A long, quiet, patient, unremarked in this life movement toward Christ and Christ-likeness in faith. In that calling wisdom is the essential tool to orient yourself properly wisdom is the essential tool to orient yourself properly and that may be may well be blindingly obvious you're sitting there going obviously Alex what else would it be of course but here's the thing it is incredibly difficult to put that into practice in our lives we all know wisdom's good and yet we're terrible at actually living it, at pursuing it, at recognizing it. And yet, as our passage this morning tells us, wisdom is better than folly in intention and in action. Wisdom is better than folly in intention and in action. And this remains true, even if the results aren't what we would like, even if the situation is spoiled by folly that gets mixed in, even if folly sits enthroned above us on the heights, wisdom is still better than folly, even if the results aren't what you want, even if the situation is spoiled by folly, even if folly sits above us in power. Wisdom is still better than folly. At the core of our passage this morning, the central idea that wisdom is better than folly, that's, that is the, the core message. And on the one hand, we all agree, right? Wisdom is better than folly. I don't want to be a fool. Cool. Thanks, Solomon. Appreciate it. Way to go, Captain Obvious. Anyone who would say, sign me up for folly, that sounds much better. Of course not. That's, none of us are going to want that. We don't ever think we're being foolish. We don't ever think we're being foolish. Of course, if we did, we wouldn't do the thing. Whatever it is. But foolishness starts with the heart. So, we don't recognize when we've been deceived. Solomon talks about this core idea in chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Look at that with me. Verses 2 and 3, he says, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, we could, if we were a bit unscrupulous, use verse 2 as proof text of a particular stripe of political rally, right? Right? But maybe, obviously, that's just not what God's Word is doing here. As in English, there are two definitions of the word for right. One is the opposite of wrong, the other is the opposite of left, and Solomon's using kind of a wordplay here to draw both definitions together. The wise man's heart inclines him to the good, to the correct, to the righteous. A fool's heart sends him the other way. As an aside, there is an awful lot of using the Bible this way in the broader culture, in the broader discussions in the world. Not perhaps that blatantly silly, right? But not far different. Pulling a quote from Scripture that completely ignores the context, completely ignores the author's intention in the passage, and using it to make a point often wholly at odds with God's Word. Sadly, this is almost as prevalent among theological debates as it is in other areas. Always be on your guard against someone pulling a verse or two out in isolation to make an easy point. As God's people, we are called to rightly divide the word of truth, being intent first, last, and always on God's truth, on what his intention is in the full context of the passage, in the full context of the whole of God's word. He is not going to say one thing in one place and contradict it somewhere else. Be on guard against those who would give you an easy truth that fits comfortably with what you'd like to be true, or what they'd like to be true. We have to be on guard against Twisting God's truth over and above any convenient use or twisting of His words. And truly, that is an aspect of wisdom. The desire to read and understand and use God's Word rightly rather than conveniently. To be ruled by, to be corrected by God's Word. To read it and be humbled and recognize my need to repent as I read it. This is an essential aspect of the wise man's wisdom. It is both the result flowing out of a heart inclined toward God, and it is the cause leading us to pursue God's face with every step in every moment of our lives. And it is not limited merely to intentions, though it certainly covers that, but also actions as well. And we we know this, don't we? Uh, Jesus said in Luke 6, among many other places, using the metaphor of a fruit tree, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble. The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. The evil person, out of the evil treasure of his heart, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What fills your heart overflows into your actions. If your heart is filled with folly, with flight from God, your actions will, without fail, reflect that bent, that direction. If your heart is filled, on the other hand, with wisdom and love for God, we would say with a New Testament understanding, filled with the Holy Spirit, your actions will not fail to demonstrate that. Even when a fool walks on the road, Solomon says, as opposed to his normal traveling across country in a shortcut that is nothing of the sort, even when he manages to act with some modicum of of wisdom, of worldly wisdom, Even then, he goes around telling people that he's a fool because he can't hold it in or hide it. His character, his heart is full of folly, and so everything he does will declare that he is a fool. The foolishness in his heart comes out for all to see. Now, obviously, it doesn't make itself immediately obvious all the time. See, he's walking on the road. He must be wise. He's using the road instead of the, the cow path through the pasture. But it will always become clear eventually, because he is always telling people who he is. Wisdom is better than folly in intention and in the actions that flow from the heart. This is the core principle of the entire passage. But as we've said several times, Solomon has no real intention in, or interest in papering over the difficult parts of this life under the sun. And the harsh reality is that wisdom does not always, or even often, result in the big splash of a good result in this life. But even if the results are not what you prefer, still wisdom is better than folly. In chapter 9, verse 11, Solomon rattles off this litany of all of the ways that one would, the, the one that we would most expect to succeed doesn't. Look at that verse. He says, I saw under the sun the race is not to the swift, the battle is not to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligence, nor fa- intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. As a modern example, if you're a fan of March Madness, the basketball tournament going on right now, it's been rather madder than usual this year. Uh, this this point has been driven home over the last several days two of the teams most expected to lose seated at the very bottom of the tournament won their first round game one of them actually won the second round as well madness indeed now Obviously, a college basketball tournament, fun though it is, isn't particularly weighty in the grand scheme of things. If Purdue beats Fairleigh Dickinson or vice versa, if Arizona beats Princeton or vice versa, it is not ultimately going to have any significant effect on world history as far as we know. Probably not even on the personal lives of many who weren't actually participating in the games. The underlying reality that applies to the tournament applies at least as much to our lives. Time and chance happen to us all. We are snared in the disasters of our lives as things go differently and usually not as well as we expected or wanted. And when we are captured in the net of those disasters, those unfortunate things, they feel evil to us. I wanted this, and it didn't happen, and this happened instead, and that's much less than what I wanted, and so it feels evil. The ultimate example, of course, is death itself. Death always interrupts our plans, always tears to pieces the lives of everyone touched by it even unexpected at the end of a long life death. Death is always a tearing, a rending of the fabric of life. But even when we aren't snared by death or disaster, it remains true that wisdom does not always pay out in this life the way we might like. Look at verses 5 to 7 of chapter 10. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places. The rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. This is a little confusing because Solomon, before and after this, is talking about our interactions with those who are actually in power, the rulers, the kings, the nobles, whatever. Um, But here, in these verses, he uses ruler and rich metaphorically for those who are rich in wisdom, as it were. He says that he has seen those with the wisdom to be nothing more than a slave, who are absolute fools, slaves of every whim and passing fancy, nevertheless with great wealth riding on a fancy horse and honored, while the man who is outwardly his slave has the wisdom of a prince. That the outward appearance is completely at odds with the inner reality. The world does not often reward the sort of wisdom that the Lord honors. And we get that, don't we? This is the experience of our lives all too often. Christ-like character traits, the fruit of the Spirit pursued diligently, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are more likely to get you treated like Christ. Rejected from polite society, ostracized, gossiped about, maybe even executed they are more likely to get you treated like Christ than they are to get you invited into the halls of power. Because a faithful pursuit of those things means that you're probably not willing to play ball, to lay aside principles, go along to get along, ends justify the means, pursuit of pragmatism. If you are pursuing faithfulness, rejoice in whatever the Lord ordains for you, whether that is influence and success or infamy and ignominy. Because true wisdom knows, and it reminds you, that this world and its treasures are not remotely the point. This world has some nice baubles. And I don't doubt that all of us would be glad to have Amazon-level or Microsoft-level money. That would be great. It would make everything so much easier, right? But far better to be wealthy in the kingdom of God, even at the cost of abject poverty in this life under the sun. Better to be honored in the kingdom of God, even at the cost of shame and dishonor in this life before the world. Where is your treasure stored? Even when the results in this life are not what we would like, yet nevertheless, wisdom is far better than folly. And Solomon gives us an example of what this looks like. This is uh, chapter 9, verses 13 to 16. This is uh, story of a small city under siege uh, by a great king, a large kingdom, whatever, someone with great power. Uh, and, and this is vague enough that even if Solomon were thinking of a particular event, of a particular city, particular uh, example of warfare, he's made it vague enough to be a parable for all times and all places. Um, This city is besieged by an army and is utterly outclassed by it. But in that city, there is a poor man who is wise. And there's some translation difficulty here, but it seems the sense, especially based on verse 16, the sense is that no one would listen to him. He could have saved the city. But because of his poverty, no one listened. Obviously, he couldn't have anything to say helpful because he's a poor man. If he actually had something helpful to say, he would have been in the halls of power, a wise man, a a rich man, a, a noble or a king, whatever. He could have saved the city, but because of his poverty, no one listened to him, and so the city fell, and he was forgotten wisdom is good even if it is spoiled by the admixture of folly we plan our steps taking account of all the wisdom that we possess listen, listening to those who are yet wiser than we are when they advise us but solomon frames verse 17 the way that he does because humans since the fall are far more likely to listen to that charismatic shouting of a ruler among fools like hitler the child who leads for the sake of his own stomach, for the sake of ease and sloth, verse 16 of chapter 10, they're far more likely to listen to that guy than they are to listen to the quiet musings of an unheralded professor who happens to be wise, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One sinner, like a dead fly rotting in the ointment, turns what was beautiful and aromatic and lovely into the stench of death. Wisdom and honor are far more difficult, require far more time and patience to acquire and to use. But even if they can be and often are spoiled by the sinful, foolish shouting and brangling of the ruler among fools, yet even then, wisdom is better. Verse 17, the land of chapter 10, verse 17, the land ruled by a man, even if he's young, who diligently pursues what is best at the proper time in wisdom, that land is happy or blessed. Age isn't the key here. Wisdom is. Look at verses 8 to 11 of chapter 10. This really brings this, some examples that bring this home vividly. Look at it with me. Um, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. There are two types of things, two two types of example here. Uh, The first is there are things that happen despite the best possible preparation. That's verses 8 and 9. Accidents happen because Adam and Eve sinned. And now the world is under a curse. A man may dig a pit as a trap for an animal as a deadfall and then accidentally fall into it himself. Stuff happens sometimes. As you're expanding a building and and knock down a wall, unbeknownst to you, maybe a snake has taken up residence in between the walls there in the nice, cool, quiet shade and is a little annoyed that rude strangers are breaking into its home. I'm told this is actually a very common problem even today in Israel where there are at least 20 different species of venomous snake. Thanks, I'll pass. Quarrying stones, splitting wood can be dangerous tasks, even with the best care possible taken. Now, wisdom can limit the danger somewhat, but it can't entirely remove it. Then we get to verse 10 and 11. If wisdom is rejected, the danger, the risk, transforms into near certainty. The best you can possibly hope for is to have to expend extra energy on the task. A dull axe. I mean, at the bare minimum, a dull axe doesn't split wood nearly as well. And I can tell you from experience in the Boy Scouts that what happens most commonly with a dull blade is far more dangerous to its user than a very sharp blade. Dull blades turn. You swing the axe and it doesn't cut the wood. It bounces off and cuts your leg. I've seen it happen. This passage is very practical. It details a number of situations through these Proverbs and parables, To show that wisdom is better than folly, despite the lack of fame, despite the lack of fortune, despite the lack of ease, despite the frustrations as you end up working harder for less recognition, despite having to see your wisdom ignored. Reminded of the old proverb, those who will not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We know that part, right? Did you know there's another half of that? Those who will learn from history are doomed to watch those who won't repeat it. despite their warnings wisdom is even better than folly when you're required to live under a foolish ruler and all of us have experienced that but if all of that describes the world in which we live under the curse how is wisdom better we've been talking about all of these terrible things that happen because you're wise and you know why would i do that that sounds awful Why not take our ease rather than taking our lumps? Because at the end of the day, under the sun, this world is not all there is. Jesus said, to "Store your treasure where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal it. Folly says, I want ease now. Give me all the ease and the, the, the wealth and the comfort, and I, that's all I want. I don't care about what happens next. Just give me the, give me the comfort. Wisdom says, It may be harder now, but because of Christ, wisdom is utterly secure eternally. And whatever trials I go through now, I know he will turn for my good. Wisdom, at its core, wisdom is to trust the sovereign power of God and the limitless love of God for his children, as demonstrated together at the cross in the empty tomb, that those things together will, without fail, bring you through to salvation and glory, to a better end than folly now. That the trials of this present life are not worthy of being compared to the glory that will belong to the children of God in that day. It is Wisdom is to keep your eyes fixed on the truth that this world is not the end of the story. That is not all there is, but that the one who created this world very good before we perverted it, the one who created it very good is also shepherding you home every step of the way. Not because you're so great, not because you're such a treat, you're not, I'm not either. But because Christ purchased you. Because he loved you enough to pay your debt and to adopt you into his family and he will not be cheated of what he purchased. Trust in him and be wise. Fix your eyes on him alone for there is nothing better in this life or the next than to fix your eyes on Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We are so often foolish. We so often run after the shiny baubles of this world. But you are our shepherd. And you come after us and you bring us back. And you guarantee by your own character and nature that you will not allow us to be lost. And so we worship you. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would lead us into wisdom. That you would lead us to walk every step of our lives under the sun in light of the day when we will no longer be under the curse. Regardless of what the outcome is, let us remain faithful to you and pursue the wisdom of your face, of your heart, of your character, of your love for your children, that we might be pleasing to you. That we might honor you with the whole of our lives. Teach us to be wise, that your name would be praised. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.